Charles is the first to have really sounded the alarms about climate change. He was the first big figure to announce the importance of indigenous voices in our thinking and the first to sound the alarm against mindless bits of architecture. Many of the things he warned about and that he was dismissed as a bit of a loon have all become commonly accepted now. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me, repeat guest, uh, executive chair of the Media News Council and a distinguished journalist in Canada and around the world, John Fraser. Thanks for making the time. Honored to be here, sir. John, you got a, a unique invitation to the coronation. You were there for the funeral of the queen and back to see Charles crowned as the rightful king. How did this happen? Well, I got the invitation, not from Buckingham Palace, but from Lisa LaPlan, recently <laughs> fired by CTV. It, it's because I helped be, she called me her wingman during the funeral. <laughs> I was working on a book on it and we just ran into each other a few days before. So I ended up being on a broadcast she did, which ended up being very successful. I mean, she'd been given the heave-ho by CTV and she put together a, a kind of consortium with City TV and with a feed from CNN. Anyway, she got better audiences than CTV, which was pleased to no end. And then when the coronation inevitably came a year later, um, we got along so well, she asked if I, I would come. So that was my lucky break. My golden coach, but my, my, you know, my coach is now a pumpkin. All coronations are over and I'm back being a normal human being again. <laughs> <laughs> no more free trips to London for you. No more. No, no, no. And I, I won't be around for the next coronation, I don't think. What was the feel like for the, the coronation? Could you describe the mood in comparison to the funeral? Um, well, comparison to the funeral, there was no comparison. There, there was the death of this amazing woman who went from young womanhood to extreme old age with very few errors. She made a few, but hardly any, and she was beloved by the end. And uh, her son, who'd been waiting longer than any heir to the throne in the history of that particular throne, finally got to be king with all sorts of speculation that he was going to screw up or that he wasn't the right person for it. But in fact, he handled the transition uh, flawlessly, in, in my opinion. And uh, he's been doing a good job since. But the mood, the mood during the coronation was was happy and, and celebratory, but it wasn't, wasn't anything like the mood for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And Dave, I have to tell you, I remember the coronation. I was born in 1944, so the coronation was 53, so I would have been nine years old. Uh, we had we lived in Toronto, and we had one of the few television sets in the neighborhood, so the whole, half the neighborhood was in our living room watching this on a tiny little uh, black and white TV set. But I can remember the fever. It's a boy's memory, but that wasn't around for Charles. That, that That's changed. Um, there, it, it's not, it's not, it was almost a quasi religious feeling at that coronation. And this one, it was, it was a passage of, 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 of a baton, you know, and, and, um, it doesn't make the monarchy less relevant, especially to our parliamentary uh, system, but it is a different thing than, than when she got crowned. You mentioned in the book, 12 days in London, some stones and they symbolize sovereignty. Yeah. Well, the mon monarchies. I mean, its foundations are rooted in mythology and medieval and even ancient history. Um, and it comes down to us in some strange ways. I'm sure there were people watching this coronation that thought, what is going on here? It was, it was um, arcane. They, people didn't feel that way with Elizabeth's coronation, partly because, first of all, it was black and white. It was on a small screen. Um, uh, and it was uh, also 
it was also a time of huge hope. I mean, Europe, the world had just come through a terrible depression, a terrible world war. The people were still, Britain was still littered with war, with, with bomb ruins. And, and here was this young woman with her Prince Charming and two little kids. And, and she was such a harbinger of hope. Well, Charles is, a, you know, he's the longest, longest waiting heir to the throne in the history of the throne. And, and uh, he's come and he, he, he assembled all of the symbolism of monarchy, the orb, the scepter, the crown, the royal jewels, all of that. But um, it, 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 it didn't quite seem quite the same. What came through to me was that this is a decent man who's taken on a job that, contrary to what a lot of people think for the life of monarch, is to some extent thankless. I mean, sure, he's got nice residences, but um, he's also got the same, he's got family problems like every family on God's earth. And and he also um, has a huge responsibility to, to, to continue an institution and not be the last king. And he won't have the same amount of time that his mother had. He's got, he's got what, 15, 20 years, I don't know. Um, I don't want to predict his death, but he's not going to be on the throne for more than about a, a quarter of the time his mother was, if that. What would you make of William, who's in, who's now in the wings? The people's attention turn to him a little bit more? Yeah, they will. Probably just have to get their eyes off his wife, where a lot of the focus is. William is in the, a great model of Windsor men. He's not, he's not like his brother Harry. He's sort of more plain, if I can put that politely. He's in, like his grandfather, George VI, great-grandfather, and the, the Windsor men, he's, he's not a very controversial figure, although, I mean, any sovereign in waiting can become controversial, but he um, is an unformed entity. So we, the verdict's still out on him, I'd say. And your very, assessment... No, I was about to say, he doesn't have as good hair as young Mr. Trudeau, but... <laughs> Who does, though, right? No, and he doesn't have much hair anyway, William. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up to over a year now since the passing of, of Elizabeth II, I mean, you've you said in our last conversation you have full confidence in Charles and that confidence has been backed, you would say? It's been warranted? Oh, yeah. It's the, one, the one thing he has to do in this country is has to get here. Um, <laughs> we have to see him. His, his mother used to say, I have to be seen to be believed. Well, it's the same for him. We have a system that works quite well, particularly with its Canadian components through the vice-regal offices of Governor General and Lieutenant Governor. But we need to see this person that we are honouring with being our, our head of state. Um, and it has to make some sense. He has a real opportunity to do something much more than his mother did, which is, which is to help us with the, the great scab in our, in our mm -hmm. history, which has to do with Indigenous uh, reconciliation. And he has a good record on that going way back. He w even took some heat for it when he said we should listen to Indigenous voices because they've got great truths to tell us. And that was part of the, the, the file some people said was part that he was sort of a bit of a Looney Tunes, but he took it seriously and he's got real friends in the Canadian Indigenous community. So he has a chance to make a unique contribution to this country in that file. And I hope to God he does because we could use it. You sure could. You mentioned in the book, John, that you did have one encounter one-on-one -on -one with, with the outgoing queen. Did you ever, have you ever had any encounters up close with, with King Charles? Yes, but um, they weren't quite 
they were they were within large receptions and uh, there was one the ontario um government gave i used to be a sunday school teacher at, at my church and one of the young provincial civil servants who had once been my student and he was talking to charles and he said oh you know i don't know how it came up he said my sunday school teacher's here and charles said where and he turned around and pointed at me and he said a Sunday school teacher. There's not many of those left around, are there? And I said, no, sir. And I'm not one anymore. And he, he asked a bit about that. And we had some others. It was just a, a, a sort of, you know, there was about 400 people in the room. So it was a, what you call a minute and a half conversation. I did, I did see him uh, run a meeting of the United World Colleges in Wales. There's a Canadian one out in the West Coast, just outside of Victoria, the Lester Pearson College. These yeah, I've been there, yeah. Well, this is Prince Charles in those days was the sort of honorary patron. Right, and Prince what, of Wales, what, yeah. What killed me was that they some grandees come for this big meeting. Galen Weston, the late Galen Weston, who's the head of all those stores, Loblaws, he arrived in with a uh, in a helicopter. Armand Hammer, the billionaire, arrived in a convoy of six limousines and was preceded by a security force that had lead screens to wherever he sat around and Prince Charles came in a Ford Escort with one bodyguard and that that impressed me hugely that, mm. that how low-key he he kept kept that so I think that's the man too he's 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 so many things have been said about him and he's his whole life is a pretty well an open book I mean my god he's packed he has a microphone wakes up to a microphone is some of his most you know he's been humiliated and all sorts of things throughout the the problem first marriage but he's persevered because he has a sense of what he's supposed to do and he has stuck truly to it so uh, to me he's an admirable human being and we're lucky to have him his wife camilla there was a season where she was consort now she is officially queen could you explain them the difference there well i think that's <laughs> all to do with the troubled first marriage is she was not going to become the the second princess of Wales, they, they weren't going to try. Diana was this beloved figure and the divorce was taken badly by a lot of people. So there was a personal story of tragedy. And then there was this big public story, this, this sort of movie magazine business and the famous quote about this is a crowded marriage. I think she said in the interview, but I think the thing was not to sort of besmirch the memory of Diana by, by making a Camilla too quickly take over some of the roles that would have been Diana's, which people were probably thinking about. But they, so they were testing the waters, I think. Even, even sovereigns have to test waters to see what's acceptable. And I think it was decided that she had proven her value and her worth and, and deserved the honor of being seen as his proper wife and the wife of a king is a queen. That's the way it goes. I don't think it's more complicated than that. It's hmm. helpful. You also brought up in this book the significance. I mean, we talked about this last time, just this story that couldn't have been put together for a movie. I mean, the crown wouldn't have been able to come up with a script as good as, as what went down with how Elizabeth had this amazing life and then even how she went out uh, with the change of guard and parliament in the UK and then where she passed and and in Scotland and how is that part of the UK responding to Charles, uh, given where they were not that long ago with uh, even some independence notions? Well, I think independent Scotland doesn't mean it's not monarchical Scotland. Even if they went their independence, it's a bit, it would be a bit like Canada. It would be a federal system. I guess that's what would happen. 
But of course, the whole independence movement in Scotland has been thrown on its head because of what's happening to that Scottish independent party. But in any event, the royal family has deep, deep ties to Scotland. And Charles is a direct descendant of kings of Scotland after the death of Elizabeth I. I think the way, it's, the way that old queen managed her death is one of the most brilliant things I ever saw. I mean, she died in Scotland to point, make the point that she, she was queen of not just England, the fact that Scotland was was the first place that sort of changed the sort of equation of, of, of the internet. And so you saw it truly, the core was an international monarchy is the Queen of Scotland, Queen of New Zealand, Queen of England, Queen of Wales, Queen of Australia, Queen of 16, 15, 13, how many other realms still still acknowledge her? And there'll probably be some some more of the Commonwealth countries. They won't leave the Commonwealth, but they may want to have their own head of state. But um, I don't think it'll happen in any country that requires a referendum, because what happened in Australia when everyone thought they were going to abandon the monarchy is people suddenly realized they were handing over to the prime minister of the country the control over what was who was going to be the head of state. I don't know if this is a, a rallying cry to go to war for. It's not like king country, but they think uh, the known devil was better than anything that, that the Australian prime minister was going to bring up. So they voted to retain the monarchy and, and, and against all predictions. And I think the same thing would happen in this country if it, if it came to a referendum. But it can't. It's not going to be a referendum. That uh, it still has to be our system because we are a system, uh, an involved parliamentary system. So it's crown and parliament and each parliament recognizes the crown and that's each of the provinces and I think the territories um, have to agree to it plus the House of Commons and the Senate and I don't know anything in the history of this country that leads you to believe that we have any degree of unanimity on anything (laughs) (laughs) but we still we hang in there we're still a good country (laughs) (laughs) could you uh, break down a little bit of the vice regals in Canada how that works in conjunction with the crown for the many kings that are not aware of this it's an evolution in which, because the, the monarch cannot be living in all the countries that they are sovereign to, uh, can't even live all the time in Britain. So it's an evolved system in which distinguished citizens in the country and in, in the federal system, in the provinces that have individual parliamentary units, there is a name taken, which is recommended by the prime minister to the sovereign. It's in effect chosen by the Canadian government but it is officially recognized by the sovereign and they represent, they are the crown's representative. They're, they're a regent. Often it's just in the office of the prime minister that the ideas come. Prime Minister Harper had a system in which he had a committee uh, um, under the leadership of, of the clerk of the, the Privy Council in, in the Senate. Um, it was also known as Black Rod. And there were different people in different provinces that were there to bet likely candidates to recommend to the prime minister. The idea was to give Mr. Harper five names that he could choose and, and recommend to the queen. And it was a good system. And uh, I was on one of these panels for appointment of a lieutenant governor in Ontario. And when uh, the Trudeau government, uh, Justin Trudeau came in, I, I remember, uh, I think I told you this story, David, I, I recommended to an official in, in uh, Trudeau's office that the, one, whatever you thought of Harper, he had a good system for choosing uh, vice-regal figures. And he said, yeah, yeah, they're very proud of that, but we think we can do better. And their better was poor old Julie Payette. You know, whatever you think of it, it was an unbetted appointment. They, they went for a sort of flash and headline without checking, checking things out. 
So it was a tragedy on several fronts for her too. And the governor general in conjunction with the lieutenant governors, they're sort yeah, of the, the lieutenant governor be pretty independent. I mean, they, they are the force to which a provincial legislature has to get their legislature approved. It's pro forma, but it's done. You could say that the governor general is first among equals, but the lieutenant governors are pretty independent souls. They're, they're not subservient to the governor general, although some governor generals think they are. That's, that's kind of similar story. to like a premier to prime minister. Yes, exactly. And try putting down a premier. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't always go over so well, does it? John, you said that this was a man who was largely ready, who was largely, you know, working all this time, couldn't have been more prepared for the job. William, you're still kind of waiting to see what he's going to bring to the table. What are you expecting to see uh, to see from him in the next little while? Like, are there particulars that you're going to be watching with a close eye? Well, I've watched to see which causes he supports. He's, he's become like his father. He's become a person in waiting. And uh, there's no rule book for, for heirs to the throne. Um, there's lots of precedent for completely screwing it up and doing, doing badly. Um, his father was the longest waiting heir to the throne in the history of that particular throne. Uh, William and his Kate are contemporary figures and they, they will want to identify, particularly with their generation and the ones coming of their of their children. Um, I don't. I don't think he's um, he's he's not going to be a controversial figure the way his father was as Prince of Wales. I don't think. I don't see William doing anything uh, like that. I think he'd be much more like his his grandmother. He will be very um, conscientious and serious and and. Uh, Mind his P's and Q's. His his fa father was much more of a the, the king was much more of a, a in one sense a loose cannon. Although he's knows his constitutional duty backwards, I'm not worried about that. But he he I don't see William speaking out the same way. But I think he'll be a great constitutional sovereign. I think you have to be kind of um, almost unworldly patient in those jobs because they're. Large parts of it are thankless. You just you're just um you're just a symbol and you have to breathe life into the symbolism and make it relevant and, and so you have to choose what you're doing. And I think he will choose a very low key way to do it. And just finally, I mean, you alluded to being a Sunday school teacher for a season and we talked about last time and the change a wording that King Charles is no longer defender of the faith, but defender of faith. And obviously, he's serving a contingent of people who are far less religious across all these different countries in the Commonwealth. Is there something to be said, though, for the the religious faith that brings about a reverence to this rule and to the person and how they they do it that could be lost at all with Charles not having the same devotion that that his mother did? The Queen had a longer time at it. And she also had her ups and downs, particularly during the period of the death of Diana. For people like me who uh, revere the role of the crown, he, he doesn't have to prove anything. I, to me, he's a decent human being who understands this country and will be a fine sovereign. For people who are more public in nature or who are largely indifferent, which I think is most Canadians, he just has to show that he is relevant. And the best way he can do that in Canada is through the Indigenous connection. And that is something no previous crowned head has done in this country. So it, it's something worth watching. Great. Well, thanks for making the time to, to chat again and give us a little update on, on where we're at in the world of 
of the crown and appreciate your contributions thank you so much for asking me well we are gaining more knowledge about king charles that's for sure john fraser just knows this so well such a gifted writer too if you can pick up a copy of that 12 days in london a funeral for a queen wow just just incredible and as they say time will tell to see what kind of king charles will be exactly but it is rather unique that he has to live in this huge shadow of his mother. It wouldn't really matter who you were. I mean, every one of us would be living in this massive shadow. Uh, she was a phenomenal public figure. Now, considering Charles is already in his 70s, his reign isn't expected to be so long. In fact, some would argue that he's already at the end of his life. At the end of his reign? And with this kind of reminds me about one of the kings in the history of Judah. Do you know which one I'm talking about? His name was Joash. He became king at the ripe age of seven. Most kids were still learning how to tie their shoes, and Joash over here had graduated from toy action figures to having his own soldiers. And during the years of King Joash, Judah was right with God. I mean, uh, they repaired and restored the main place of worship, the temple. Life was good. At least it was from the outside looking in. What was really happening was Joash was confiding in the priest Jehoiada. He was older, wiser, and the one with all the answers. So when he died, King Joash consulted others. And these others contributed to Joash really erasing his steps. He abandoned the temple, began worshipping Asherah poles, idols, and it was like, how can two parts of your life look so different? It's simple. It comes down to who you surround yourself with. In our spiritual context, as we're called to pray for our leaders, let's pray against this happening with King Charles. And let's also be mindful of how we live our own lives. Finish well. It's important, but it's much easier said than done. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. As we feel the brunt of the conflict and captivity in the Middle East, we really only scratch the surface. Melissa Fung is a journalist who was actually captured by the Taliban back in 2008. She spent 28 days in a hole at gunpoint. Her survival today is miraculous, and she wants to spread this hope. Don't miss my conversation with Melissa as we talk about her new book that covers the Boko Haram terrorist group in Nigeria. She spent more than four years interviewing people, uh, girls especially, who had been captured by these terrorists. And her book is Between Good and Evil. She's the recent author of that. I think I was curious. I was motivated by my own PTSD, my own trauma. And years later, I was still struggling with post-traumatic stress. You know, still having nightmares, still um, very angry, still, you know, having episodes where I felt like I was back in captivity. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.